Having a Gas With is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for advertising, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Richard Hillgrove, a public relations guru who has made his name representing well-known clients like Vivian Westwood and Duncan Bannatyne, as well as more controversial clients like Charles Saatchi and Julian Assange. So for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with you, um, why don't you tell us who you are and how you came to be who you are? <laughs> it's going back about almost 50 years how I came to be who I am. Mm. But um, I'm Richard Hillgrove from Six Hillgrove Public Relations. Um, if you want to check us out, we're www.sixhillgrovepr.com. Um, in terms of my life history, I mean, you can probably notice the accent. I do come from New Zealand <laughs> originally, and I, I landed in this country in 1999 and never looked back. What did you uh, come over here for initially? Well, I suppose I'd been sort of like indoctrinated as a Kiwi from the age of, you know, zero. The Queen stares at you on all the dollar notes and sort of very much a sort of English country, you know, 12,000 miles away from England, which is bizarre. Mm -hmm. Um, But Coronation Street was on all the billboards advertising to us and all the women's magazines had the Queen on the front cover. I mean, I grew up with that. I was fascinated. What the hell's over there? Most New Zealanders come over on a working holiday visa uh, for a maximum of two years. Um, and I was determined to not be sent home. <laughs> I came over for fame and fortune and managed to convince... I was working at the Daily Express newspaper um, as my, well, it wasn't quite the first job. I was working at Loot first, and then I got headhunted into the Daily Express. And then Richard Desmond, who owned OK Magazine and various uh, interesting adult titles, bought the Express, and I asked to be promoted. Um, so everyone else was, like, running for cover, hiding under desks. Uh, I think he sort of shredded 35% of the staff, and here I was asking to be promoted, and I got promoted. I think kind of liked the fact that I had the gumption to be asked. I said, could I become the ad controller for all the regions of Britain? And, oh, okay then. <laughs> so off I went. Having like nine staff working for me, uh, servicing all the regions from Manchester to Scotland. And then I set up an international office, ended up looking after about £13 million worth of revenue each year. Um, nine staff employed did really well. But then I decided... Um, well, I didn't really decide, actually. My wife decided um, it was time to go into business for yourself. Um, she was uh, one of the top-selling sales execs on OK Magazine, which was on the same floor as the Express Group once you bought it. Um, she was impressed that I had my own office, um, even though Richard Desmond, in a legendary fashion, wouldn't let any of the managers that worked for him have their name on the door. That was not the done thing. I think I had one my name put on there and it got removed. <laughs> that would be, make you feel a little bit too comfortable. But anyway, so my wife, back in 2004, it's Lois Perry, the broadcaster, and she's a partner with me in the business, um, said to me, it's time to go. So, and we're sort of like, sort of like jumping out of a plane without a parachute. Um, and here we are now. And so I first, you first crossed my path when I was, um, helping to 
service the audio post-production on some work with Joe Corey, and who is, of course, notoriously Vivian Westwood's son, Malcolm McLaren's son. And um, like you, I think, a bit of a maverick, a bit of um, someone who doesn't want to play by the rules. How did you come to be working with that caliber of clients? Well... I probably, if I trace that calibre client, that particular calibre client, it probably comes from my wife as well. Um, <laughs> uh, she was quite good at that. I think she got all the, uh, she got Duncan Bannatyne as a client when I left the Express Group. Suddenly she rang me from home house and said, come here, come here, Duncan Bannatyne wants to meet you. <laughs> so I came over from another party and said, she'd been at the Alexander, the great party with Oliver Stone, and then Duncan was there, and then they went off to home house. I get roped in. So anyway, she was good at that. Um, and it wasn't through, it wasn't Joe that way. It was actually Ben Westwood, um, Vivian's eldest son, who's got the same surname as Vivian Westwood, which was from her first husband, um, Derek Westwood. And Ben was doing an exhibition in, I think it was a Knightsbridge. It was something to do with some private members club who decided to take pictures of naked women but only from their feet up or some mad concept book and ben was there looking a bit bored and lois introduced me to ben and we said well hey why don't we start doing some of your stuff and so i think i one of the first things i did with ben was launch his book called fuck fashion which was kind of a rebellion book against his mum it was rather pornographic, but really fashionable at the same time. And we hadn't met Vivian at that point, but we put on a big launch party at Jewel Bar in Soho, and Vivian turned up and loved it. And there was people everywhere. And that was the introduction. And since then, I think, I think Vivian thanked us for our help with Ben, um, gave us a special discount at Vivian Westwood. I mean, this is all probably 15 years ago. Um, so I carried on working with Ben, and we came across Joe because Joe came to some of Ben's things, some of the exhibitions we put on with Ben. Joe had just sold Agent Provocateur um, and obviously made a lot of money from that um, and had gone into a more boutique-type business called A Child of the Jago. So still in fashion but not stores everywhere. He sort of wanted the quiet life, but little did I know he didn't want the quiet life. He's very much wanting to use his money and influence uh, along with Vivian, to make a difference in the world. And he's got his charity, which he's got today, which has been running for 10 years, called Human Aid. And then he set up Talk Fracking and kind of let me loose. I was sort of like a sort of Sid Vicious in a way, uh, with him being the Malcolm. But I can tell you, look at it. But he liked to think that I've been let loose on some of the sort of interesting stunts that I've been known for with Joe financing in the background. So I think. One of the highlights might have been something I did for Talk Fracking with Vivian Westwood, um, which I planned out, um, where we took a white tank to David Cameron's house in Oxfordshire to protest against fracking, uh, with Vivian in the uh, top of the tank driving along the road and about 60 or 70 media turn up. We had uh, police helicopters above us. Outside David Cameron's house, there was an armed guard with a machine gun. <laughs> And we had all these fracking nanas from from Preston brought down on the bus with Vivian in the tank. And more, the media coverage on that was intense. It was like um, within an hour, it was all around the world. Because um, it was well orchestrated and planned out. 
uh, and has a set of edginess. And I see in the sort of summaries of Vivian's life now that you see on television from time to time, they show clips on her top 10 moments. I see that her driving the tank, either one or two or three in the, in the list. That was a good one. Actually, also the thing, Joe only discovered the other day, he said, was that on 9-11? I said, oh, yeah, we did it on 9-11 as well. So we, we took the tank to his house on 9-11, so it was September, <laughs> um, to make a chemical attack on his family. <laughs> wow. We also took a spare cross to number 10 Downing Street. That was a good one. With a Santa Claus wearing a um, gas mask. I think it might have been a gas mask from Gary. <laughs> from Gary from Gas Music gave me one of his gas masks. Yeah, well, this is good because I can cut this out so no one need know we were complicit. No, I'm sure it's great. But um, how, how do you go about orchestrating these? Um... How do I orchestrate or... How do I plan it all, you mean? Yeah, because it's, it, you know, you're, you're obviously delivering it with uh, the breeziness of uh, someone who knows what they're doing. But uh, to mm -hmm. someone like me, I, could, I can't imagine how to get a tank and a busload of people and the world media onto someone's doorstep. Yes. I, so you want to know the, how sausages are made? Uh, yes, in parts, but also how the Richard Hillgrove sausages are made because, you know, this is, not, this is no normal... Uh, PR, is it? Um, well, it is actually. It's normal, but it's sort of amplified and turned up a few notches. Mm. So it's like uh, um, unbridled, if you like. But then at the same time, it can't be chaos, but it kind of comes across like it's chaos. So something coming up, which is the film, the film that you were involved making the sound for, it's now called Wake Up Punk, was the film about when Joe, which I, I did the PR for, on the 40th anniversary of Punk, um, told the world he's burning £5 million worth of his Punk memorabilia kit. We did that about nine months before the actual anniversary date, which was backed by Boris Johnson, then Mayor of London, um, and the Museum of London and BFI. Everyone seemed to be supporting this celebration of Punk which made Joe particularly angry. And we came up with the idea of burning his £5 million with a punk kit. And he then decided to film it all. So that's what's become this film. It's been basically taken three years to make <laughs> for some reason. Um, so many re-edits. Um, your music sounds fantastic because I just saw a final edit just the other day. Um, but coming back to your point, how do you can make that and make it all happen. And I think there's certain formulas. I just did a speech for an online business festival. Um, the organization's called Like Minds. Um, their website is www.wearelikeminds.com. And they said to me, that, right, they can't do their events in Mayfair anymore. Well, not at the moment anyway, for business owners and SMEs and stuff like that, which might have had like the um, editor of GQ speaking at, they have to do it all online. So they've decided to launch an online business festival and they asked me to to headline it. Well, it wasn't a headliner. I just happened to be the first person willing to go online and do it um, just the other day. Um, and explain in simple speak how can any business person do their own PR in simple speak. So they haven't got the budget because of coronavirus to start 
paying PR agencies, how do you DIY PR, which is a very punk concept in itself. So I broke it down into lots of little steady piles and worked out the whole matrix of how do you do it. And there are, it's like a HelloFresh um, meal box that arrives with all the ingredients made out. And if they're all laid out on the table, you can then follow simple instructions and put those elements together to make something. And I broke it all down. Um, I'm kind of inspired to write a book about it now as well. Um, how does anyone make themselves famous? Um, but you'll have to buy the book. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, yeah, I won't get you to give away your, um, your secrets pro bono. There are specific questions I could answer them, but it's a kind of like a bit of a seminar going through the whole process. Um, the main thing is to, uh, I think the main ingredient is the exterior. It's like the car that drives fast down the road. Um, with media, it's got to be a kind of frenzied, um, trumpized effect. And it's got more and more like that the more we become desensitized to narratives. And it really is the same narratives going round and round and round, represented with different skins, um, with, with seeming like a new, but actually as consistently the same as a baby's rattle. And when you tell a journalist a story and they go, oh, that's a good story, you think the reason you say it's a good story is because you've heard that story and printed that same story, not just once, probably hundreds and hundreds of times. But the... On the surface, the skin or the exterior of your lovely car looks nice and fresh and new each time, but the underwiring is very much, oh, we recognise that, we understand that. And, but it's having that sense of urgency in the way you write the releases. The headlines are absolutely critical because journalists now, when I talk to journalists, they say we used to get 10 a day and now we're getting a, 150 to 200 releases a day. And you imagine them just sitting there hunched over their computer watching release. If that headline doesn't say it as it is, pretty damn well straight up, they're not even going to open the press release. So they're getting swamped. But then, so therefore there has to be a familiarity in the sense they understand what it's about and why it would work because that's what always works. At the same time, it has to have a sense of sizzle and pun and, and work um, but also seem fresh because it collides two opposites together to make a new. But having a sort of brazenness to it by appearances, not necessarily in terms of the methodology in which you create the narrative, but it appears to have a crackle. It's like a fireworks display. It's like bang, constantly banging. That's so it seems like the, there may be some kind of uh, overlap between our practices because people are always trying to figure out how to make mu new music that people want to hear, but that basically still ticks the same boxes. It has to be presentably different, but functionally the same. Agreed. Very much so. Very much so. A formula still, even yeah. though it seems complete. Still working within three minutes for a single to be released. <laughs> Not doing an Andy Warhol film of the Empire State Building where you film like nine hours and make people sit through it. You're fitting those formulas all the time. Agreed. No, although Warhol seems like the kind of client that uh, I can imagine you working with. Uh, should we talk about some of your more notorious clients? Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, I understand you've done some work with uh, Julian Assange. I have. I, I was very privileged um, to be asked by his lawyers um, when he could no longer speak for himself to the world um, to represent him but through the medium of others around them, like the lawyers. Um, 
there was a time when he was still in the Ecuadorian embassy where they cut off his internet, his phone, he had no guests, nothing. But they still managed to get him to sign an agreement with me for two years to represent his personal PR, but with the caveat that it was through others because he couldn't do it himself. So that was very interesting. It was like a whole year of working very intensely on his case um, and managing all that. And what about uh, your work with Saatchi? Can we talk about that? Well, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, the Saatchi thing I can talk a bit about. Um, What would you like to know about that? (laughs) Well, what was your involvement? Because obviously um, the story that caught the attention of the the world media was the uh, the uh, altercation with uh, with Nigella uh, public you know so it must have been quite difficult to control well yeah and it was already out of control I mean I've got a, a reputation now of being the guy that people come to when they get in a lot of trouble obviously um, I mean my my story is that I represented all these dragons and from BBC Dragon's Den and and uh, different entrepreneurs. I, there was like on Channel 4, there was a series called Secret Millionaire and we ended up having three dragons we were representing and 10 secret millionaires we were representing. So I became the guy, like the business guy with a bit of edge that would represent entrepreneurs who really want to make it. And then interestingly, what happened to me, my personal story was like a absolute road wreck situation where one one day um, in 2012, I was sitting reading the Telegraph in the morning and two carloads of HMRC officers arrived with bulletproof vests and jumped out of the car at about 6.30 or 7 in the morning, came in and said, you're under arrest <laughs> for a whole host of things. And thereafter, my whole life was tipped upside down. What, what a saga that was. Um, Actually, if you go on 4OD, you can see the saga um, with a thing called Catching the Tax Dodgers. Um, I volunteered myself as a subject for this documentary, which was supposed to be nailing people who'd been um, late filing their VAT returns and all sorts. I argued that was quite a, quite a massive response to me, late filing a VAT return to having me arrested and put through a court case and, and destroyed effectively. Um, a process that went on for almost three or four years. Um, I got found guilty by a jury. Uh, I would argue certain facts hadn't been presented, but I'm not arguing that now. Um, Fortunately for me, uh, despite being found guilty and sentenced to a year and a half in prison, I got um, the sentence suspended by the judge. So it took three months waiting for that. Um, so you imagine the stress on family life and all the rest. So my response to that as a PR uh, in that situation was rather than going and hiding from the fire, going and crawling up a drain and hoping it would all go away, is to come out and be as transparent and communicative as possible. Uh, maybe in hindsight I wouldn't be as combative as I was, but I was. And I played stories about myself and my demise in the Sunday Times. I had like I just said, a Channel 4 documentary basically following me around. Um, and I thought, wow, this is unfair, and it just went kind of bombastic. And I would take, looking in hindsight, I wouldn't do it quite that way. However, my advice to people when they get virtually squashed under a bus is 
don't hide away. Don't, the instinct is to basically avoid. And my my lesson to all clients who have got themselves in a bit of trouble is to basically shoot on, you know, fire on all cylinders. And and so what's developed, interestingly, is like a hybrid now um, as a company because as I've re-emerged like the phoenix from the ashes um, and back to my best is that I've got the legacy of having been the financial PR, the dragon's PR, you know, entrepreneur's PR, but now also been through such, such a sort of terrible time myself that people when they're faced with you know the media machine eating them alive how do they survive it and i've got an expertise in that area now too so so in that sense through friends of friends i got and i've done some consultancy in new zealand for sarchi's um got involved after the story had broken in that sarchi case i got quite a high profile on that on that case um with nigella um and then there's been a whole host of other types of clients. I suppose you put Julian Assange in that category as well. He's certainly someone who feels like he's been treated very unfairly by the system. Um, I've got a one of the most famous Indian yoga gurus who's just had a Netflix documentary made about him called um, Bikram. Bikram, Bikram Yogi Guru Predator. Mm-hmm. And he's hired us to to bring him back from the dead, if you like, because he feels like he's the walking dead to a certain degree, reputation-wise. But interestingly, from both sides of the fence, so there he is accused of rape, which he does not believe is the case. But then on the other side of the fence, I've represented the Harvey Weinstein whistleblower, Rose McGowan, for about nine months. Um, So you couldn't say on one side or another. I mean, like a good lawyer, everyone deserves a defence, you know. So um, as a PR, I've become the guy people call when they get themselves really, really, really in lots of trouble. But that's certainly not my whole thing. But, you know, with my personal backstory, I can certainly say I understand how it feels. What uh, is your take as a PR guy on the current climate we're in with social media and the internet that people can land themselves in that kind of bother just by tweeting their own personal feelings. Is that stressful when you're representing people who can effectively just publish their own voice at any time? Yeah, I, mean, I think the walls are definitely coming down between traditional media and and social media. I mean, the two worlds, um, they used to be separate, but now they're completely coming down. And like like I said about the, the tank story where within an hour that story can be travelling the world. That's my that's my whole legacy in terms of PR. It's creating these content vehicles that can transmit through traditional media. But obviously all traditional media is online. And like you just said, a simple hashtag can transport um, someone who's got an anonymous account with maybe only 14 followers and suddenly it's gone viral and it's worldwide in minutes. And... To answer your question, what do I do? Are you saying I should be arming people with tools to never get themselves in that trouble or or ride the wave that they've created without realising it or manufacture the wave deliberately? Well, yeah, it's a question as to where... Well, the third option there is definitely something I hadn't considered. The question is, um, do you think people are going to be advised, for ex- for instance, not to have Twitter accounts? I know lots of people say that the president, for example, shouldn't have a Twitter account because it often gets far more publicity than the official comms of the White House. Twitter politics, yeah, well, he's, he's certainly used it to position himself as a man of the people. And, and very much, I saw an article in the New York Times just last week saying that Trump 
very, very cleverly um, has utilised the media by playing them that, their own game. And he very much understands that uh, all publicity is good publicity in the sense that the media has an appetite for mayhem uh, and, and nonsense and, and hysteria, as we've seen with COVID. I mean, you know, where, where is the truth and what's happening here? Um, and there's different views on that. I could share those with you. Um, it's kind of quite interesting. But it's almost um, wrong to even suggest there's anything other than a, a disease that's here to stay and we all need to be permanently socially distanced. And if you say anything else, um, you get outlawed, which is, in my opinion, absolutely ridiculous. But Trump used the, the media's sensitivity to inflammatory comments and kind of interesting ways to talk about race and, and people of different backgrounds, knowing the reaction he was going to get very deliberately and sort of like waterboarded the media in some ways and got himself so much airtime and column inches as a result um, that the negatives all turned to positive. He just got a hell of a lot of coverage. And, and in some ways, knowing how the media operates, the best way to do it. I mean, I always talk about this with my wife. I'm saying I used to have, be a freckle face. I used to see lots of freckles on my face, which were a bit annoying. And if you get so many freckles, um, you eventually you can't see them anymore. You've just got a tanned face. And what he'd done is he put out so much noise that people forget what it is they were worried about. Him. They just know they know him. He didn't have to basically spend hardly anything on advertising. Only, only in the some, some millions, but nothing like the impact he got in terms of that. But you've got to give the media what they want if you want that. That t- does tend to come from a negative place, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Prepared to um, fight the fire with fire. <laughs> Why do you think he was um, able to end? You know, there were many, many things that he did that would have been considered career-ending gaffes or statements, but there's something about him that makes him immune to it in a way that other politicians wouldn't be. Well, I think if you if you are a certain brand, um, then it's par for the course. So if he has got a certain road crash style, um, but as long as he's very confident in that style and he just carries on up the jungle with it, um, that's his brand. And all he's doing is reinforcing those brand values. But if you were like a a Pee Wee Herman once where the actor, I can't remember his name, but it was in an adult cinema. The actor who played Pee Wee Herman was in an adult cinema and caught, I think it was an adult cinema and got caught masturbating or something like that. And he was a children's character that wouldn't be funny like if Billy Connolly got caught doing it. He mm. talks about masturbating all the time when he's on stage. It's Pee Wee Herman. His image was childish. He was appealing to kids and it killed him overnight, that act. Yet for another brand... It doesn't. I mean, you get Stephen Fry talking about snorting cocaine in Buckingham Palace constantly in books, and because he's got a lot of sort of panache about it, it's all part of his personality. Yet someone admitting to cocaine um, usage, like Nigella had done, um, got her banned from entering America. So, so how can it? How can it? Because she's sort of like the domestic goddess, and it just wasn't part of her brand. But then how can Elton John be talking about snorting cocaine? But then he's doing you know, the John Lewis ad. Um, it's supposed to be a family-friendly brand and it's, and it's okay to talk about this stuff. Whether you're, it suits your brand ideology. 
But Trump, Trump understands he's this bombastic, right-wing, wild man, and that's him. That's do, him. do you think he gets too often, uh, what would you say, he gets too often portrayed as someone who is quite simple and quite stupid when really he knows the strings he's pulling? 100%, yeah, because he's trying to unlock um, his vote and his vote kind of like that, the fact he orders Big Macs and sends them to his office. I mean, the fact he's all American, down to earth, make America great. He's playing up to that. He, he knows what he's doing, 100%. Is there any, um, I know Gary's been talking about the fact that you've got some, you've got some projects in the pipeline, but I've not been... Uh, privy to that information. Is there anything exciting that you're working on in the near future that you can uh, tell us about? Well, I've always got interesting things in the pipeline. Um, it'd be quite good to do a couple of interesting things with Gary as well. Um, one of the projects, I was representing a medical cannabis doctor in America um, from Los Angeles that I hope, hope to introduce Gary to last time he was here, but we ran out of time. I took him to number 10 Downing Street and we had him on Good Morning Britain. His name's Dr. Frank D'Ambrosio. And he defined um, his brand by being a guy that was making understanding medical cannabis more family-friendly, if you could call it family-friendly. There's lots of disinformation about medical cannabis because everyone thinks it's dangerous. He's saying it's not. And he wanted to be the friendly face, like the sort of... Colonel Sanders of medical cannabis. And one of the things we thought we'd do is create a Netflix type thing or Amazon Prime where we go around the world. I mean, Gas Music were involved in creating an incredible film I saw called Wildlands. Um, what was the name of the director of that? Do you know? The director was Colin Offland. Colin Offland, who I'm yet to meet. But it was incredibly shot. The music, obviously, was amazing. Um, and I think something like that, funded partly maybe by the client, but maybe by the, the, the um, Canadian, to, not tobacco, tobacco's getting into medical cannabis, but there's so many big weed companies now, and Canada, where it's all fine, really need, especially post-COVID, a, a way to argue their corner because Big Pharma is certainly putting out a whole lot of smear about medical cannabis. And even though it does seem to be legalising all around the world, someone needs to go and get to the essence of what the hell's true and what's not true. And as this client, Dr. Frank, could be that, that client. So I'd engineered for him to go to the World Health Organisation. He gave a speech. I got him writing about medical cannabis for um, the British Medical Journal. Yeah, which is great. I got a big issue involved talking about the benefits of medical cannabis with homelessness because there's so much disinformation about fake cannabis spice being the, the drug of choice of the homeless. So all of that's there on the table and be interesting to carry on with that project. And that could be a project we work on with gas to, to make it really cook. Yeah, well, I hope so. Um, so we've just about done uh, 40 minutes there. So um, one thing I wanted to... Uh, ask before we wrap up is you've settled on quite a distinctive image, sort of like um, the Dr. Livingston of uh, PR. Where did you develop the affinity for this great hat? Dr. Livingston of PR? I thought it was Indiana Jones. I wanted to say Indiana Jones, but I thought it would be too cliche, so I just sidestepped it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Very good point. When, when did I decide to settle on this image? Yeah. Do you think I did it deliberately? Not necessarily. I wanted to know where, how it came about. I'm sure, I'm sure you weren't born with it. No. <laughs> but I do sleep with the hat on when I go to bed each night. Um, I, or, yeah, I always like, I think, I think my wife used to encourage me to do things that I really enjoy and, and, and encourage me to, um, to keep the hat on because I was wearing a hat. But she said, oh, no, you should keep that on. And when you get a picture taken, no, take a picture with the hat. And people did. And I used to start going to events wearing the hat and people yes. used to call me, certain clients in America used to call me the hat man. <laughs> and so I was thinking, oh, yeah, my wife's in the background. She said, you're, that's right, Tony Blair came up to me at Labour Party conference and he said, yeah, you're the man with the hat. <laughs> um, so, so even when I was sitting at dinner tables, um, as a member of the Thousand Club for the Labour Party back then, I used to wear the hat because people used to recognise me. Um, so it created a, it's like a calling card in some ways. With the beard, I got so used to the beard. I mean, maybe, I think that was my wife that encouraged me to do that as well because she's, she's like a Tudor Henry VIII fetishist and um, she won't let me shave it off now. It's getting longer and longer through the bloody lockdown as well. Not long like this. Maybe it will stay longer. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it will be a big, long beard. But anyway, so hat and beard. But I always say to clients, and I did this in this lockdown festival, I said one thing you've got to do to understand your brand is get some very simple iconography. I mean, Stephen Hawking, he had that voice. Um, you know, the doctor said to him, you don't need to be using that voice anymore. We've got a voice that will sound like a normal voice. Oh, no, 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 no. So he kept that voice. Jamie Oliver keeps that sort of that checkered shirt kind of country style, and like a uniform. They wear it like um, Mark Zuckerberg still looks like he's wandering around campus. Mm. Um, once in a blue moon wears a certain type, he's called into Congress. But um, keep it simple. I mean, distinctive, not necessarily deliberate, but as that hair of Donald Trump really is kind of quite distinguishing. Yeah. Um, Steve Jobs, yeah. entrepreneur, you know, Turtleneck, basic jeans, doesn't... Yeah, yeah the, the smooth lines of Steve Jobs, the smooth lines of Apple, the late Steve Jobs. Um, those simple things, and you just can't constantly repeat them. Even Ariana Grande, someone said to her the other day, why do you still wear the high ponytail? And she couldn't answer, but very deliberately still wants to look like she's like 15-year-old, like even though she must be 30. Because yeah. that's her. She's the girl... The little girl with the high ponytail, and all the stylists just keep putting that in there in place. So it becomes like a cartoon. If you could actually draw a cartoon of you, then you've succeeded and created an image which will transmit for a long time. I suppose the, the Prime Minister has done that very well as well. Well, yeah, there's, there's Where's Boris and all the rest. Yeah. I mean, he seems to have adopted a lot of the Churchillian iconography. And I'm writing a book as Boris Johnson on the Churchill factor is a bit of a giveaway. Um, but it's interesting, with that blonde, crazy hair, really is a calling card, kind of like like Trump's got his comb over. And it's so distinctive that apparently last year, the most popular Halloween costumes um, included Boris Johnson for kids. So, so that's how much of a sort of folk hero, or I don't know what you call it, but anti-hero, if you like, he's become. Yeah, and it shows yeah how much image uh, is important, even if it's not necessarily a sensible one. I think more people would quickly identify the Johnson image than the Corbyn image for the last election. 
Well, things like authoritarianism always tends to be quite wacky and quite dramatic and, and unusual and quite comedic in some ways. Um, and they always say that the most, most powerful leaders as well are kind of people you can trust. And if you can make people think something kind of funny, um, there's certain people in history that I could talk about where I won't mention by name, but um, the theatrics and and the mad pantomime effect almost is what makes you penetrate the masses. So, so the more simply you can make it, the better. Great. Right, well, I won't uh, take up any more of your time, but I will say thanks for... Um, having a gas with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Speak soon, yeah? Yeah, cheers, mate. Thank you. Bye. Bye.